0: This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu now, Scott Clark. No
1: topic is more central to the biblical doctrine of the Christian life or more important to Reformed theology and piety than the topic of worship. Few topics are as controversial in our time as the question of how worship should be conducted, by whom, and to what end. Because worship is so important, next month, October 20th through the 23rd, Midway Presbyterian Church, Powder Springs, Georgia, is hosting a conference to address these very issues. You can check out the conference at reformedworship.com. That's reformedworship.com. Joining us to talk about Biblical and Reformed worship are W. Robert Godfrey, President and Professor of Church History at Westminster Seminary, California, and David Hall, Pastor of Midway Presbyterian Church. David is the author and editor of several books, among which are The Practice of Confessional Subscription, Paradigms in Polity, A Theological Guide to Calvin's Institutes, and Tributes to John Calvin. All these volumes and more are available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, David, and hi, Bob, and welcome back to Office Hours.
2: Hi. Hey, how are you? you? Bob, how are you all?
1: So, David, you're hosting a conference on Reformed worship. There have been a number of such conferences in the last several years. Why another one?
2: Well, I think what makes ours distinctive are two things. First, the emphasis on expository preaching, and secondly, the use on historic Reformed liturgies among our guests. Presenters are Dr. Paul Jones from the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. In fact, this is actually our third conference in October, our third year in the row. Paul Jones is essential to our work. We have a very strong emphasis on music. In fact, this year we're offering a master class for church musicians. And this is a conference that unashamedly seeks to hold forth the beauties and satisfaction of traditional reverential worship.
1: David, one of the speakers at your upcoming conference on worship is our own Bob Godfrey.
2: There's nobody we wanted more than him. Uh, our two keynote speakers this year are Bob Godfrey, the wonderful president and uh, actually a very good preacher from Westminster Seminary, California, and Stephen Lawson from Christ Fellowship Baptist Church in Mobile, Alabama. Both are excellent practitioners. Of the art of homiletics, we also have a number of seminar speakers, but uh, we are tickled that uh, these two exemplary preachers will be the leaders and model good preaching for us this year.
1: And you also have Terry Johnson, Hughes Oliphant, Old T. David Gordon, John Payne, Mark Ross, and others.
2: Right, we've got we've got a wonderful faculty. As I said, this is about our third year. Doctor Old, for example, is pretty much acknowledged as one of the leading experts on. Reformed liturgics, and he's going to do some new lectures for us. So one, for example, on Thomas Watson and catechetical preaching, on how that Puritan great did catechetical preaching. There'll also be uh, a sermon or a workshop by Dr. Old on Savonarola and his expository approach to the book of Amos. So there's a wide variety. We have, just, we're, like I said, we're just tickled with the guests we have. T. David Gordon is always interesting, he's always stimulating, provocative, and Uh, He will be doing excerpts from his two most recent books, Why Johnny Can't Sing Hymns and Why Johnny Can't Preach. And he's going to explore and and give us a a debut of a new topic, Why Johnny Can't Pray, uh, which we think will be very excellent. Uh, And we will have uh, simple but biblical worship services, including a good bit of singing of psalms and also traditional hymns.
1: Bob, what is wrong with worship today? How long have you got?
3: Um... That's a great question and, of course, a complicated question, and obviously different people would answer it differently. I suppose as a historian, one of the things that strikes me is the amazing way in which worship in Protestantism has changed over the last 60 years. I think if you went back to 1950 and visited conservative Protestant congregations in America, you'd find, at least on the surface, a great kind of uniformity. They would appear—there would be differences, but uh, there was a a remarkable consensus of what worship ought to look like. It wasn't always carefully thought through. It wasn't always uh, carefully biblical or theological, but there was a kind of uniformity, and um, it had strengths and weaknesses even then. But what has happened over 60 years, it seems to me, is the rapid and unobserved, in many ways, spread of what is fundamentally a Pentecostal approach— worship. And I, I don't use that label in a pejorative sense. I just think it's historically accurate to say that increasingly Pentecostal practices and a Pentecostal theology of worship has spread to many places that are not Pentecostal. And I think the importance of continuing to have carefully thought through worship conferences is to challenge whether that almost unthinking adoption of Pentecostal approaches to worship is a good thing, a bad thing, a biblical thing, of course, is the fundamental question that needs to be asked.
0: You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California.
1: David, what in principle is the difference between the Reformed approach to worship and other approaches to worship?
2: Well, yeah, I want to just follow up what Bob said. Many of us who are pastors today did not grow up in the Reformed tradition. I certainly did, and I came to Christ through the Jesus movement and went through the charismatic movement and into all kind of bizarre things. As I look back on them, I'm just, just thankful I didn't become a Jehovah's Witness or something, and thankfully God and His sovereignty kept me from that. But in later life, I look on this, and it, it really does seem like there's a simple answer to your question. I think from the Scriptures, there are two schools of thought and worship. We tend to think there's a Lutheran thought on liturgics, there's an Anglican approach to worship, there's a Reformed, there's a Baptist. I don't think that's actually in line with the Scripture. Hebrews chapter 12 says that we are, since we're receiving a kingdom that is not shaken, to thankfully worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. And a close reading of that verse implies that there are two schools of thought and worship one that seeks to worship God acceptably, and all other worship that is not acceptable. Now, none of us who are practitioners at this conference or pastors would claim to have a monopoly on the ideas about worship, but we would glean from that verse in Hebrews chapter 12 that some worship is acceptable to God and some is not. And that's a strikingly simple approach and a question to ask of every worship service, regardless of denomination, tradition, regardless of location. But it seems to me we ought, as Bible believers, to frequently ask the question, and this is what our conference and our our association is seeking to do, to ask the question over and over again, what worship is acceptable to God? And the answer to that, of course, is to plumb the depths of his word and see what he himself says. It's a very simple concept, but I think it makes all the difference in the world. And we know, too, if I can just add on that verse, I cannot find another institution in our society that is promoting the lost virtue of reverence. In fact, many institutions promote the opposite. But the only institution that has an opportunity to promote something that seems to be a lost art, that is reverence, is the church that seeks acceptable worship. So we want to ask over and over again an answer from Scripture. What worship does God himself find acceptable? And it seems to me any Bible believer would want to fall into that deep channel and follow that train of thought.
1: Presumably, most people, when they gather for public worship on the Lord's Day, are doing what they think God approves. It's hard to imagine people gathering and intentionally doing things in worship that they know to be not approved by God. And so the question still, I think, is before us to some degree, and I'm not disagreeing with what you're saying at all, David, but the question still is before us. What was in the minds of the Westminster divines when they gave us the language of chapter 21, 1, and particularly halfway through, that says, but the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will— that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. What were they thinking, and why did they articulate their principle of worship that way?
2: Scott, let me let me take that and tee it up for Professor Godfrey, because he's a historian, and I'm not. And I want to set this up for him to answer, because I want to take slight exception to what you just said. See, I think that's the problem. I think people don't ask that question. I don't think it enters most people's minds. Is our worship acceptable to God? I think most people come and they say, well, we will worship like our friends do, or we will copy a rock concert platform, or we'll imitate a coffee house, or we'll do that. I don't think it's a malicious thing, but I just think it's a benign neglect, or it may actually be a malignant neglect, but we fail to ask that essential question.
3: Well, yeah, I think— David is right and and Scott's right because I'm a unifier. I like to agree with everybody. But I do think it is absolutely true that most what we might call conservative Protestant churches function with the assumption that what I want to do since I am a Christian must please God. I feel so good about it. God must feel good about it. I want to do it, and I'm very sincere in wanting it to be worship acceptable to God. Therefore, it must be worship acceptable to God. And I think they don't often stand back and ask, now, is this really true, that what I want to do, what I feel good about, what pleases me is also pleasing to God? And I think that's why the Westminster Confession— having faced similar questions, not in the same historical context, obviously, but similar questions in their own day, came to this conclusion that the only reliable way of knowing what is acceptable to God is to study the Bible. And they, of course, not only studied the Bible, but they took the additional step of saying, from our study of the Bible, we conclude that acceptable worship is not what I do sincerely— It's not what I do that makes me feel good. It's not what I do that draws others to it. The only reliable way of evaluating what's acceptable to God is from His Word and from His Word alone. If it's not in His Word, it is not acceptable. Now, that, of course, is a controversial point of view. Uh, There are people who claim from their study of the Bible that, in fact, God gives us a great deal of freedom to do what we would like to do uh, in worship, that he put certain boundaries to what we can do, certain limits on what we can do, but within those limits, we're relatively free to do what we'd like to do. And that becomes the key debating point in a lot of ways. Is God's Word a full and exhaustive revelation of what worship ought to look like, which is what we of the Reformed tradition have said, or is it only presenting limits within which free action can take place, which is what most of the rest of the Christian tradition has held. And uh, I think these conferences are so important precisely because they encourage us to keep going back to the Bible, to look at what the Bible actually says about worship, and to discover that I think the Bible is abundantly clear that God is jealous for his worship, that God is as concerned about worship as he is about anything, maybe more concerned about worship than he is about almost anything else, and that for that very reason he has exhaustively revealed to us uh, what our worship is to look like.
2: Bob, can I I follow up? You you mentioned, and I made notes here, you you just made a wonderful three-point sermon.
3: I wish I'd been listening.
2: And see, you didn't even think about it. You just do this instinctively. It was so good. But you, you listed three Uh, alternative basis for deciding what is valid worship, sincerity, feeling, or evangelistic magnetism. And we wouldn't take any other question of life. Let's just, just take the moral issues addressed in the Seventh Commandment, the Eighth Commandment. We wouldn't take sexual morality or economic decisions and apply any of those three to be our criteria for what we did. We wouldn't say, well, you're free to do whatever you want to in sexual morality if you're sincere. Although our our teenage children frequently ask us if they can't do that. You wouldn't say if it feels good, you do it. You wouldn't say if it draws people to the church, do that. you do the same in terms of property and possessions. So it's a curious inconsistency that most evangelicals don't ask the question. And and, and evangelicals are are quick to want to ask that question of sexual morality and of property matters. It seems to me that what our conference and what what your seminary and, and some other fine groups are seeking to do, is to revisit that question and apply it to an area that really is a very important and regular part of our growth in grace.
3: Right. And, and you know, I think you make a wonderful point there. It's also true, of course, if we think about theology. If we think about the Trinity, there you have a difficult doctrine that is probably evangelistically problematic that we may or may not be able to feel strongly about. Uh, and yet, nonetheless, it has to remain central as a foundational Christian truth. And so, yeah, I think what we want to say in this conference and as, a, as the testimony of Reformed churches is that we believe worship is just as important to God and needs to be as important to us as these other rather obvious areas
1: of uh, commitment need to be as well. When we come back, I have a question for the two of you, and it's a pastoral question and also a theological question, and it is this. Few topics are as volatile in Christian circles and in the Reformed world and in the church generally as this question, that is, what should we do in worship, why, and how, and who should do it? Why is it such a hard question? Why is it so volatile? Why is it so difficult to discuss this? And when we come back after this break, I want the two of you to answer that question.
0: In the beginning, God said, Let there be, and there was. God the Father created through His Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God the Son is the Word. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. God the Spirit works through the preaching of the Word. For 31 years, Westminster Seminary, California, has stood for the truth and reliability of God's Word. Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu, 760-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His gospel, and His church.
2: One of the reasons that even discussing things like worship is so volatile, sometimes controversial, and to some offensive, is because worship is that activity more than any other particular activity in the human life in which, for the Christian, our emotions are tied centrally to what we do. We are in the presence of God. Those hours of the week, hopefully more and more churches are joining us in not only morning worship, but evening worship on the Lord's Day. And so those hours of that week that we spend in that activity, which, as your audience is aware, is one of the few activities we do here that continues into eternity in heaven. It involves our whole person, involves our emotions, so worship becomes very important to us. And the, the fact of the matter is most people don't like to be told that what they're doing as a practice is something that's not exactly right. I, I think the analogous answer is one that R.C. Sproul gave years ago to a lady who protested, well, that my God wouldn't do that, as he was talking about of the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. And he took a step back, and I think it was a wise pastoral step to take this back. Maybe we need to do the same thing on this question, at least analogously so. And the lady was offended and when R.C. responded and said, Ma'am, how many gods are there? And she said, Well, of course there's only one. And he said, Well, how do you know that one true living God? And she said through the Scriptures. And I think we have to do that with worship. Many people would look at us and say, My God would not want to. That way it might be lifeless and dull. And I think one of the other real areas of weakness in the modern evangelical church is that we have not taught our people what godly contentment is. And as a result, we frequently have to answer the question, why is that worship boring? And we have to take a step back and say, is it the purpose of worship to be a stimulating light and laser show scintillating all of the senses? Well, probably not. And so it's a a very emotional topic, but good pastors and good professors and good Christian leaders need to take some of the emotion back and do as Dr. Godfrey said earlier. We need to point people to the Scriptures. We keep going back to the Scriptures.
3: I think David's remarks are exactly right and foundational. I, I would just add to them. It becomes emotional because it's where Christians live week by week. We can talk about the central importance of the doctrine of the Trinity or the central importance of getting the understanding of the Seventh or Eighth Commandments correct, but we don't live there in the same way that we live as a congregation week by week with gathering for worship. And so even those with whom we would disagree considerably on worship are likely to agree with us that worship is very important. And it's both its importance and its regularity means that the issue of how we're going to worship comes up every week as a, a matter of practical Christian experience. And so w- we do feel very strongly about it. And I think another contributing factor to our emotional response to this issue is the fact that we live in a, in a very democratized culture where we are inclined to think I – as a member of the church, have my ideas about worship, and they're just as good as anybody else's ideas on worship. And so when I'm told that my ideas are somehow unbiblical or wrong, it not only strikes at a central part of my Christian experience, but it also strikes at the notion that I should have to submit in some way to experts or to authorities And so I want to be able to do what I want to do as an expression of my being an American. And um, therefore, I have a right to my opinion, and my opinion must be as good as anybody else's. That's hard to overcome in our society, that not all ideas actually are equally good or equally biblical.
2: Bob, you and Scott, remember, too, and we're coming up on an anniversary, I plan to do something a little unusual. I normally preach through expository messages sequentially through the Scripture, but uh, this September, I plan to redo a sermon that I did back in September of 2001, an anniversary sermon of a very important and catastrophic event in American history, the mm. 9-11 sermon. And of course, it'll be a scriptural treatise, but I remember being a pastor that week, and it was one of the more shaping weeks of my pastorate. I was never so thankful to be a pastor as I was in that crystal clear early part of September of 2001, and I also was thankful that we had fixed good liturgical forms. Our little congregation gathered, and we read prayers out of the Anglican Book of Prayer and out of the Scottish Common Book of Prayer for the different branches of the military. And when we sang, and I've told this to, to hundreds of people at different conferences since that time, churches in America gathered, and we sang, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, How Firm a Foundation, you know, oh God, our help in ages past, a wonderful, rich hymnody. We didn't sing Shine, Jesus, Shine, or sing Do, Lord, in that very pressing time. We had to turn to resources that are strong. And that's what I love about traditional reverential worship. It has staying power. It sustains, and it sustains Christians on all continents and throughout all ages. And that's, that's what we think the church needs more of not just the flavor of the day. You're listening to Office
0: Hours from Westminster Seminary,
1: California. Let's say a pastor is listening to this interview, and maybe his elder or maybe the rest of his elders, and so the session or the consistory gets together after listening to this interview, and maybe they attend the conference, maybe they read some of the material that's recommended, and they decide, you know, we do need to make some changes. We haven't really been operating according to the biblical teaching as understood by the churches and confessed in these ecclesiastes documents. What advice would you men give to this pastor and to his elders to reform worship?
2: I'll just say two things quickly. First is, when we make changes in the church, we owe it to our congregation to explain why we're making changes from Scripture. And I think you have, any church that does that kind of change, and I hope there will be many, would have a period of teaching before radical changes are made in worship service. That can be very jarring to most people. And then the second thing you have to do is you have to model those things in in small incremental steps. And you bring in a good creed here and there, and you sing a a psalm that is singable. One of the mistakes I made early on in my ministry was to try to introduce certain of the psalms too quickly. And we used uh, the Trinity Psalter that... uh, wonderful pastor in the South who's associated with Westminster Seminary, California, Dr. Terry Johnson helped edit. We are now using the Book of Psalms for Worship by uh, the Covenanters, and it actually has a musical score, and our people are responding much better to that. So you have to go slowly, but you have to be able to teach from Scripture. This is why we're changing. This is why we do what we do.
3: I think that's right, and I think as you help people see the biblical issues and the biblical solutions, you're going to find most people who love the bible are going to respond to that and one of my sons is serving in a church now that started far from reformed worship and it was a church that really on its own began to discover that some of the things they were doing weren't really biblical. And today they're, they're singing a lot of psalms, not because anybody told them they had to, but they were excited to learn psalms were set to music and were available. And they decided they really wanted to know the Psalter better than they knew it, and that singing it would be a way to do that. I think maybe not all churches will respond with quite that eagerness and enthusiasm, but part of our task as ministers is to help them understand psalms. Psalms aren't always easy to understand. They're not immediately accessible. And yet I think what people discover is that whereas some of the more Pentecostal music is immediately acceptable, there isn't really much depth there to be going on with. Whereas the Psalter may take more effort initially, but you suddenly discovered you've entered a gold mine where you can keep digging and keep finding more and more that is profound and precious and strengthening And as David was saying, particularly in times of trouble, I think so much music that has captivated a lot of the church today is really only capable of celebration. And when there's time for mourning, when there's time for grieving, when there's time for confronting the miseries of life, uh, that music proves wanting, I think, often.
2: Hey, Scott, can I tell a good story to follow up on that? There were two wonderful weddings in the month of April, my daughter Megan's and kate middleton's uh, <laughs>
3: how similar were they
1: david
2: <laughs> Kate Middleton's was a little bit more attended, and
1: did yours cost as much as hers
2: it It, it just about did to be honest <laughs> but, but, because i didn't have free government money, but anyway,
1: at least percentage wise yeah. <laughs> yeah,
2: but I thought as i i watched and yes i'm i'm i'm, I'm pretty much uh, of a testosterone guy, and yeah, my wife woke me up at five thirty in the morning, and I had to watched the wedding that early but it was a wonderful liturgical exhibit i mean here's a church which modestly i have to say is, is very far from its evangelical and biblical moorings and yet they had a fantastic worship service with great music our congregation sings that wonderful anthem that's associated with british heritage in our hymnal to the words of oh, love of god how strong and true and now, uh, this morning I met with my second daughter who's getting married, and she's going to use that in her wedding. Well, the next generation, here's the point, the next generation can be taught these things. It's simply a myth to believe that the only things that can be passed on or traditioned are the charismatic ditties. Great music, rich music, wonderful music can be passed on. That's one of the things that we have as a rather unique emphasis on our conference, and we hope that there will be some sessions and consistories who will come en Moss, as a group, we'll give you a discount, and then go back and use the things you learned as your own retreat and formulate your own worship service.
3: Advertise that uh, discount more widely in Dutch Reformed circles, and you'll do better.
2: We'll have a special Dutch Reform discount.
1: There you go. That's a good time to remind everyone that you're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California, and we're discussing worship with the Rev. Mr. David Hall. Pastor of Midway Presbyterian in Powder Springs, Georgia, and with W. Robert Godfrey, President and Professor of Church History at Westminster Seminary, California. And they're both involved with a conference at Midway Presbyterian in Powder Springs, Georgia, October 20th through the 23rd, this next month, 2011. And the conference is Reformation Worship Conference, Vital Preaching and Sacred Worship. And you are invited. Anything else that the listener needs to know about this conference, David? David?
2: I'll just end by giving Dr. Godfrey a chuckle by saying, y'all come.
0: (laughs) Bless your heart. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.